This week, a chance to see the lifestyles of the crazy rich Asians. These people aren't just rich, they're crazy rich. Now you really should have told me that you're like the Prince William of Asia. That's ridiculous. Much more of a Harry. <laughs> the pilots of World War II Spitfires weren't all what you'd expect. You had to be very careful in landing. She was a lady in the air, but a bitch on the ground. <laughs> And on Chesil Beach is as unexpected a pleasure as it was for Florence and Edward. I like the way you stopped in the doorway and then you saw me and decided to stare me out. Did you think then it was love at first sight? Actually, I'm beginning to think it was. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. It's September now, which means whatever the weather tells us, that it's technically spring. And spring at the movies means that season immediately after the blockbusters have done their damage, when film distributors look at what's left in the cupboard and wonder what to do with it. The answer is spring cleaning, and I, for one, am always fascinated to find out what sees the light of day. Sometimes you need a third option. That's Overwatch. According to the government, we do not exist. We're ghosts. But we are very real. And we get shit done. For the last few months, movie releases have been in the hands of the grown-ups, those experts in the marketing departments who know what makes a hit film. The superhero movie, for instance, means someone with one or two superpowers, often described in the name. Did you think you could stop the future? You're just a thief. No. I'm Ant-Man. I know. Wasn't my idea. Ant-Man, Wonder Woman, Black Panther, Spider-Man, whatever. Now bring on the alien monsters. Spy movies are also reliable money spinners. Comic, The Spy Who Dumped Me, or Straight, Mission Impossible. You can have mega monsters from Jurassic World or simply called The Meg. Saying we opened up a super highway for giant sharks? No, just the Meg. And there's always room for more serious movies too, even if the plot for a historical drama is usually the same. Famous person does that thing he or she is famous for, whether it's Churchill or Mozart, LBJ or Mary Shelley. And was there ever a project easier to sell than Spike Lee's Black Klansman? We'll need a white officer to play me when they meet face to face. You for the white race, Ron? Oh, hell yeah. So there becomes a combined Ron Stallworth. Can you do that? With the right white man, we can do anything. But during the spring cleaning season, marketing rules don't necessarily apply. These films got made for various reasons. Someone like the title, a star was temporarily fashionable, it seemed a good idea at the time. And then in the cold light of day a year later, no one could remember why they made it. So generally the answer is, put it out in spring. You can't fly a Spitfire and forget about it. it. Stays with you forever. Stays with you forever. This explains the appearance of a film like Spitfire, featuring a bunch of 90-year-old World War II pilots remembering the Battle of Britain. 
And another unlikely project is aimed at Asian fans of shows like Keeping Up With The Kardashians. Though it turns out the makers of Crazy Rich Asians were crazy like a fox. These people are so posh and snobby. They're snotty. Ew. Yeah, but Nick's not like that. Even if he isn't, I guarantee you the family is. Which is why tonight you need to not look like Sebastian of The Little Mermaid. And finally, a film whose selling point was neither marketing nor trendy subject matter. On Chisel Beach is a film based entirely on talent. A brilliant novelist adapting his own book, a distinguished theatre director making his debut on film, and a brilliant cast. I felt like my life had just begun. What does he do? He's a beatnik. Shut up. And he doesn't know the difference between a croissant and a baguette. (laughs) That's why I love him. I know, how could it possibly succeed? But before we find out if and where it goes wrong, bring on the high concept. Bring on crazy rich Asians. I met a girl, I fell in love, and I want to marry her. You're Nicholas Young. You're untouchable. But Rachel's not. Have you prepped Rachel to face the wolves? You know I'm... I'm told that the film version of the best-selling novel Crazy Rich Asians had some difficulty getting made, which I find hard to believe. Since Hollywood's been trying to tap into the Asian market for years, I'd have thought a Cinderella story among super-rich Chinese would have been a no-brainer. Mum, this is Rachel Chu. She just thinks you're some, like, unrefined banana. No, 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 uh, those are a few fingers. Yellow on the outside or white on the inside. Do some crazy! The story, as they say, is a tale as old as time, the basis of not only various Cinderella's and spin-offs like Pretty Woman, but films as diverse as Fifty Shades of Grey and even The Godfather. Poor girl falls in love with Handsome Prince. Except in this film, nobody seems particularly poor. Whatever the youngs want, I procure. Golden koi fish, Hongwali furniture, Mm. a rare Cambodian gong. Why would they want to buy a rare Cambodian gong? Because they can. Our heroine, Rachel, is hardly a scullery maid. She's a Chinese-American professor of game theory, which seems to be a thing. And she started going out with a dashing Nick. All good looks and British accent. Rach, we've been dating for over a year now, and I think it's about time people met my beautiful girlfriend. What about us taking an adventure east? Like Queens? Singapore. Colin's wedding. Don't you want to be my family? Yes, Nick comes from Singapore, and to keep Rachel company, her best friend, the wacky Pick Lin, is a Singapore girl too, and wallowing in new money wealth. But of course, wealth is a comparative concept, as Rachel's mother warns her. Maybe his parents are poor, and he has to send them money. Let's take a bag and get you checked into first class. Nick, we can't afford this. So your family is rich? We're comfortable. That is exactly what a super rich person would say. Rachel gets the first hint that Nick's family may not be short of a bob or two when they walk straight into first class on the plane. Once in Singapore, Pick Lin's family put Rachel straight. The Nick you're dating is Nick Young? Yeah, you guys know them or something? Hells yeah. They're just the biggest developers in all of Singapore. Damn, Rachel. It's like the Asian bachelor. 
You'll notice the pop culture references that crop up all through Crazy Rich Asians. Not just phrases like Crazy Rich, but gags about The Bachelor, Donald Trump's design sense, reality TV in general. This is the Bravo channel blasted onto the big screen. After all, this film argues, who doesn't want to wallow in the lifestyles of the rich and famous? These people aren't just rich, they're crazy rich. Now you really should have told me that you're like Prince William of Asia. That's ridiculous. Much more of a Harry. <laughs> But in fact, actually, Nick's family has little interest in fame, which is a very nouveau riche idea. As personified by his mum, Eleanor, played with steely aristocracy by Michelle Yeoh, the youngs are old money, and the only people good enough for Crown Prince Nick are equally privileged. I chose to raise a family. For me, it was a privilege. But for you, you may think it's old-fashioned. Don't you want Nick to be happy? I know you're not what Nick needs. She's like trying to play a game of chicken with me, thinking I'm going to Swerve like a chicken. But you can't swerve. You gonna roll up and be like, Bok, bok, bitch. Okay, maybe like not as aggressive. So Rachel is challenged to break into Singapore society, despite the fact that it's mostly made up of the sort of people who inspired the French Revolution. They're rich, arrogant and spoiled. But at least they seem to enjoy splashing their money around like Asian Kardashians. Oh, oh, I'm blinded by the light. This is why disco died. You kind of look like a slutty Ebola virus. It's like a bag of Skittles. Taste the rainbow. I I think we just altered... I just think if we could just maybe just tell her this is coming from you because she probably doesn't want to hear it from a guy. Okay. Okay. And there is a little more to the plot of crazy rich Asians than just conspicuous consumption. Nick's mother, Eleanor, turns out to have problems of her own with the bossy grandmother. And Nick's cousin, Astrid, played by English actress Gemma Chan, has a complicated marriage. Not only did she graduate top of the class at Oxford, start multiple charities and is a fashion icon, Astrid has the biggest heart of any of my cousins. Well, if you say so, Astrid looks like just another of these Singapore rich lists to me, and I can see her husband's problem keeping up. But the big battle is between Rachel and Eleanor for Nick's soul. I really admire you. It takes guts coming all the way over here, facing Nick's family. Another day, another breath. I know this much. You will never be enough. Never enough seems to be the motto of everyone in this film. I suspect I'd last about an hour in the crazy rich world before I went just crazy. But this film isn't aimed at me. It's aimed at people with all the dreams of avarice. Ever since I can remember, my family has been my whole life. Rachel! Rachel! If Nick chose me, he would lose his family. And if he chose his family... He might spend the rest of his life resenting you. If your idea of a good time is to dive into swimming pools full of money like dear old Scrooge McDuck, this may be your movie. But after an hour, I found crazy rich Asians a little too rich for my blood. You nasty. You got a nasty. You got nastier. There are certain names that resonate with people who remember the Second World War. Dunkirk, for instance, Pearl Harbor, Normandy Beach, and of course Hiroshima. And then there's Spitfire, the name of the English fighter planes that won the Battle of Britain. It's also the name of a documentary that's probably the last first-person account of the war. We're talking about total war. There's nobody else helping us. All the continents have fallen down. And it was us against this monster. 
The story of Spitfire is mostly told by the surviving pilots. They were in their late teens and early 20s in the 1940s, and now they're well into their 90s. The endearing thing about chaps like Geoffrey and Andy, Norman and Nigel, is you can still see the young men they used to be in their faces. The young men on the biggest adventure of their lives. The Spitfire was built as an interceptor fighter. These aeroplanes represent to the British people an unwillingness to be bullied. The story of the Spitfire has been told many times over the years. The first time, I suppose, in Leslie Howard's propaganda movie, The First of the Few, in 1942, about the plane's famous designer, R.J. Mitchell. Mitch! They can't take the Spitfires, Mitch. They can't take them. The name Spitfire is indelibly linked to a specific moment in history, just after Dunkirk, when Europe had fallen to the Nazis, when America was reluctant to get involved, and when Britain stood alone under threat of Hitler's final push. The country couldn't possibly have too many of these fighters. It was a design which was brilliant. You can't fly a Spitfire and forget about it. Stay with you forever. What happened next is well known. The famous Finest Hour by the equally famous few of the RAF, hopelessly outnumbered by the German Luftwaffe. But even an oft-told story can offer surprises. How did the British airmen and their Spitfires manage to beat the Germans back? And what was the aim of all those German planes swooping over England's south coast? I looked up. And the air was filled with Germans. Had they landed, they'd have won. And the course of world history would have been changed. And how were all those Spitfires transported from their Midlands factories to where they were needed? Well, the answer to that question is that they were flown south, often by women like the extraordinary Mary Ellis, a spry 99 when she was interviewed for this film. The Spitfire was just like a dancing fairy. It was gorgeous. I can't really explain it. It was absolutely wonderful. Spitfire was directed by documentary veterans David Fairhead and Ant Palmer, and despite an inevitable ripping yarns tone at times, it's absolutely gripping. The footage ranges from old newsreels, including some amazing film of combat from both sides, to modern shots of the still-surviving Spitfires in action today. Enemy aircraft were falling like confetti. We were cock a hoop. But while the story of how the Spitfire was first built, then developed and improved as the war went on, is fascinating. Both sides were anxious to capture each other's planes so they could steal any good ideas. It's the men and women behind the controls who make the biggest impact. You had to be very careful in landing. She was a lady in the air, but a bitch on the ground. The experience of that particular conflict when the whole population seemed engaged in the war, unlike now when we prefer to leave it to the professionals and their technology, is almost impossible to imagine for those of us who didn't go through it. 
But it's a weapon of war, one Spitfire. It's a weapon of war, and you've got to learn how to use it as a weapon of war. These men and women were there, and their memories, not only of the events, but of how they felt while they were happening, are hard to witness without mixed feelings. Admiration for their heroism, certainly. Even envy occasionally for their certainty of purpose. You've got to always remember those who didn't come back. This aeroplane stands for so much. Grace and gallantry. It's a symbol of freedom. But also, inevitably, sadness at the passing of an era. Spitfire marks unquestionably their finest hour. But what does that say about the years and the people who followed? Grace and gallantry are sadly in rather short supply today. The writer Ian McEwan has a unique touch in his stories where happiness and regret, joy and sorrow can combine often in the same scene. That was certainly the case in the almost unbearably poignant ending to the novel and film Atonement. And that same feeling hovers over another film based on McEwan's novel On Chesil Beach. We're here, married. Nothing went wrong. Even my mother behaved herself. The film opens on the beautiful, sweeping Dorset beach, deserted apart from two figures who are seen walking along it. Their names are Florence and Edward. It's 1962, and the couple have just got married. You set eyes on me for the first time. I like the way you stopped in the doorway, and then you saw me and decided to stare me out. Did you think then it was love at first sight? Actually, I'm beginning to think it was. Florence, played by the marvellous Irish actress Saoirse Ronan, is a well-bred musician and a keen believer in banning the bomb. Edward, played by Billy Howell, best known for the movie Dunkirk, is more worldly but less focused. He likes rock and roll and is amused at how little Florence has been touched by the 60s. You know, I think you must be the squarest person in all of Western civilization. But you love me. Therefore I love you. They walk back to the hotel and along the way little actions or events remind each of them of how they met and what brought such apparently different people together. Do you mind if I tell you something? I've got to tell someone. Tell me. I say, do we know you? I just heard. I got a first. In history. That's fantastic. Let's get on with handing these out, shall we? But at the start, they don't seem that different. They've both just finished university, Oxford in the case of Florence, London in the case of Edward, and they seem to embody a certain type of young person in England just before it started swinging. Hello. Hello. And I saw a man who wasn't wearing a jacket. Nonsense. Oh, yes. And trousers with a mend in the knee. 
Billy Howell as Edward couldn't look more early 60s. With his loose, floppy hair and his earnest enthusiasm, he reminded me of pop star and occasional actor Paul Jones. And Saoirse Ronan seems to be channelling a young Vanessa Redgrave, ten years after they both played the same character in Atonement. What does his father do? You mean, is he working class or one of us? Yes, I think that's more or less what I mean. His dad's headmaster of a primary school in Henley. The story seems to be going forward towards Florence and Edward's wedding night, but at the same time it's looking back. After the first meeting, we see Florence trying to convince her snobby parents to accept Edward. More terrific actors, Emily Watson and Samuel West, playing people who don't deserve a daughter like Florence. He's like me, just finished his degree. What college? UCL. But darling, that's London. For the sons of tradesmen. Florence. They produce some pretty decent engineers. Well, exactly. A more heartbreaking moment is when Florence visits Edward's family in a rural cottage dominated by the difficulty of coping with Edward's invalid mother. Another beautiful performance in a film full of them by Anne-Marie Duff. It smells delicious. Do you know, I make all our own jam, marmalade, chutney. It never stops. And you do a wonderful job. I do my best. And the further back we look, the more we see signs that this marriage may not be all plain sailing, despite the love they share. Part of the problem is how uptight life was in middle-class England coming out of the repressed 50s. And part of it is simply how young the couple is and how easy it is to make a mistake. Marry that girl. What? Actually, I'm a little bit scared. But there are hidden secrets as well, buried in the past. And it's a compliment to the script by Ian McEwan himself, to the delicate handling by distinguished theatre director Dominic Cook. It's his first film. And particularly to the wonderful acting, that we feel what's going on without it being spelled out for us. What is it, darling? Nothing. Flo, you can change your mind. I really have to go. We can never be happy. And it's all my stupid fault. Saoirse Ronan once again demonstrates she's one of the finest and most perceptive actors of her generation. There's never a false note, and she's matched here by Billy Howell, who comes into his own in the long coda to the film that glimpses into the possible futures of Edward and Florence. The critic from the Times will be there, will triumph. And it will be yours. It'll be specially for you. It's my promise. On Chesil Beach is a film to experience, not to pull apart, but suffice to say it will grip you, it will touch you, it will break your heart more than once, and it will offer that unique Ian McEwan blend of sadness and satisfaction that defies summary. Have you actually forgotten that we were married today? Hopeless. Is it? In other words, it's the opposite of the empty calories we often find ourselves having to get used to for much of the rest of the year. Go and see it. It'll stay with you for the rest of the year, I promise. And on that delightful spring surprise, it's time to go. I'm Simon Morris, and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week.
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.